It was September 8, 1867, the day a family of Mormon farmers pulled James White from the raging waters at the nexus of the Virgin and Colorado Rivers, deep in the heart of the Grand Canyon. He was laid out alongside the wreckage of a makeshift raft. Torn and tattered, White needed to rest for days before he could even bring himself to speak. But once he began his tale, his audience couldn't believe a single word. See, White was a prospector, so his life was consumed with the hunt for gold. But when he lost himself in the Grand Canyon, he found something much more grand. This humble settler stumbled upon a cavern full of treasure. As his tale spread around the area, many came asking questions, but White could only be certain of one thing. It had been a chamber full of gold. It's said that one curious researcher visited White and brought along some diagrams. He asked White if any of the artifacts in these illustrations matched the treasures in White's memory. Some of them did. It seemed that White's treasure did have a possible identity and origin. The Aztec Empire. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the ParCast Network show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Today, we will be looking into the mystery of Montezuma's treasure a cache of wondrous riches that represented the cultural history of the Aztec Empire. It was more than a symbol of wealth. To the Aztecs, it had the value of high art, a literal representation of their empire's vast reach and influence. Yet it was all lost during the empire's fall in the 16th century. There are countless theories about its origins and its present-day location. Most, of course, are completely bunk. But there are two main theories that are worth exploring. The first is that it was scattered during the Spanish occupation of the Aztec capital in between the years of 1519 and 1521, either lost during their numerous battles or taken back to Europe as the spoils of war. This is supported by historical texts to a degree, although the extent of their pillaging remains in question. The second theory lies in opposition to this. While it doesn't discount the fact of Spanish plunder, it holds that the Aztecs would not allow a foreign nation to claim all of their highly treasured cultural artifacts. Instead, Aztec nobility recruited a select group of warriors to spirit the treasure far away to the land that would one day become the United States of America. Today, we'll dive into both theories and hunt for the truth ourselves because there just might be some truth to both these theories. To get there, however, we have to go back to the beginning, the very beginning of the Aztec Empire itself, in the balmy jungles of what would one day become Mexico. 
For many centuries, there had been war amongst the Nahua people of central Mexico. The various factions of Nahua people had once been a minority amongst the greater Mesoamerican population when they migrated into the area around 600 BCE, but by the middle of the 15th century, they had risen to dominance. Their own rival factions were separated into three main city-states, Texaco, Tlacopan, and Mexica Tenochtitlan. Conflict between these main hubs was consistent and a large drain on resources. All of that changed in 1428 CE, when the three city-states aligned their leadership and formed the Triple Alliance. The founding of this alliance also marks the founding of the Aztec Empire. It reigned for over a hundred years, covering over 80,000 square miles of southern and central Mexico, and hosted over 40 different spoken languages. However, the alliance was not built to last. Due to tribal egos, leadership was indirect and still huddled in factions. Each of the city-states had its own leader, and each leader hoped to make their people the dominant force within the alliance. By 1486, a clear victor emerged. Oitzatl of Mexica Tenochtitlan deemed himself the eldest speaker and set himself above the rules in Texaco and Tlacopan. His strength was partly owed to the city of Tenochtitlan itself, the site of modern-day Mexico City. In this time period, however, the land was mostly water. Lake Texcoco surrounded an island that the Aztecs built into a fortress of plazas and temples. The Mexican people thrived here. Using a specialized method of farming called chinampa, the locals constructed floating gardens so they wouldn't even need other land to farm. As for the defenses, the water also provided a natural shield from invasions. The only way to and from Tenochtitlan were over the eight causeways that the Aztecs built across Lake Texcoco. Home to over 300,000 Aztecs by 1500, it was bigger than most European cities and laid out in a unique four-district structure. Walled off in the center of the city was its ceremonial area, devoted to the striking temples that represented the heart of Aztec spiritual life. Although only ruins remain today, Historical records indicate that this city was one of the most magnificent in the world, and it reached its apogee during Ahuitzatl's reign. Ahuitzatl was hailed as a hero, but a different type of leader emerged after his death in 1502. His name is known commonly today as Montezuma. Only 36 years of age, Montezuma's succession arrived at an opportune time. Ahuitzatl had completed a sweep of military victories against others outside the alliance, and the elder rulers in Texaco and Tlacopan had recently passed. Montezuma saw this weakness and widened his grasp over the alliance as a whole. He outlawed the cultural standard that allowed those of mid-level birth to rise to nobility and held on to Ahuitzatl's declaration of supreme leadership. Officially, he was the absolute monarch of the Aztecs. In 1519, the empire still seemed to be running smoothly. Tenochtitlan had an estimated population of 300,000 people. It seemed impenetrable and unstoppable. This power took on physical form within Montezuma's mighty palace. Here he kept the vast riches of the Aztecs, heretofore referred to as Montezuma's treasure. 
While there are no clear records on the exact contents of this hoard, various sources point toward gold that was fashioned into many different cultural forms, masks, coins, jewelry, ceremonial spears, and other sacred objects. It wasn't just gold either, but silver and other precious metals. All seemed well for the rich and powerful Montezuma, but trouble was brewing out of sight on two fronts. Internally, the lower-class people of the empire were resentful of the lack of upward mobility in their society. Montezuma's reputation seemed intact within the causeways of Tenochtitlan, but rebellious movements began to spawn farther away from the center of power. On top of this, there was an even more existential threat on the horizon. Another ambitious conqueror had reached Mexico from a faraway land. His name was Cortez. Hernán Cortés was born in Medellín, Spain in 1485 to a family of lesser nobles. From childhood onward, he was obsessed with the voyages of Christopher Columbus. In 1504, at the age of 18, Cortés sailed to Santo Domingo, or the present-day Dominican Republic, and helped establish an early Spanish colony there. By 1511, he had earned his way into the good graces of Diego Velázquez, the governor of New Spain, with territory that extended throughout the Caribbean and into Mesoamerica. Cortés became his second in command. Cortés soon heard rumors of great riches on the mainland, that is, within the Aztec Empire. Cortés was highly charismatic and soon gathered six ships and a huge force of men around him, ready for an expedition. Velázquez, jealous of his assistant's influence, forbade the mission. However, in February 1519, Cortés grew tired of waiting. He ignored his superior's orders and, in an act of mutiny, took 11 ships, tons of cannons, and over 500 men to the mainland, claiming to have the royal decree of King Charles. Now he was a conquistador for the crown. As Cortés' army marched deeper into central Mexico, they encountered and overcame many Aztec warriors. Each victory earned Cortés more intel that the largest population and greatest possible accumulation of wealth lay across the causeways of Tenochtitlan. The island city was in his sights. Luckily for Cortés, Montezuma's popularity was at an all-time low due to his controversial laws that limited upward mobility. Many Aztecs joined up with Cortes and led him toward the speaker of the Aztec Empire's stronghold. Cortes and his men reached the outskirts of Tenochtitlan on November 8, 1519. In a letter to the Spanish crown, Cortes recorded what happened next. Quote, Montezuma came to greet us, and with him some 200 lords, all barefoot, they came in two columns, pressed very close to the walls of the street, which is very wide and beautiful, and so straight that you can see from one end to the other. Montezuma came down the middle of this street, with two chiefs, one on his right and the other on his left." End quote. There would be no fighting today. Instead, the Aztec emperor allowed Cortez's army to cross the causeways into Tenochtitlan forever changing the face of history and the history of the great empire's fortune. We'll find out just how that history played out after this. Now, back to the story. 
As the sun set on the Aztec Empire on November 8, 1519, Hernán Cortés' army crossed over into Tenochtitlan. It was an entirely peaceful crossing. For many historians, though, the question is, why was it so peaceful? Why did the powerful and controlling Montezuma allow an entire enemy force of 500 soldiers into his precious capital without resistance? Perhaps it's simple. Montezuma saw the Spanish army's superiority and heard tell of their slaughter and victory on the path toward Tenochtitlan. The more sensational and therefore popular theory was first reported in the Florentine Codex, a massive tome written by a missionary who spent years interviewing and living amongst the Nahua people. The Codex says that Montezuma welcomed the Spaniards as literal gods, with Cortes seen as the latest reincarnation of Quetzalcoatl, the mighty god of wind who reigns supreme over the myths of Mesoamerica. Aztec testimony in the Florentine Codex states that Montezuma welcomed Cortes with these words, quote, You have graciously come on earth, your high place of Mexico, your throne, which I have briefly kept for you. Enter into your palace, rest your limbs, may our lords come to earth, end quote. In contrast, Cortes' personal accounts show that he saw this simply as total submission to the Spanish crown. He and his men took up residence in a former palace and settled in for the long term. From this vantage point, they were able to take in the culture and life of the city. Cortes and his men were shocked at every aspect of Tenochtitlan, its size, its strangeness, but most of all, its riches. From the perspective of the Spanish, the Aztecs were sitting on top of a pile of gold with no idea of its value. Gold lust soon took over. As Cortes slowly came to understand the high status afforded to him by the Aztec emperor, he requested that the golden treasure be brought to him and his men. In the pages of Bernal Diaz del Castillo's True History of the Conquest of New Spain, he includes the memoir of one of Cortes's captains, who gives more detail to what happened next. Quote, with the help of the Aztec goldsmiths, we began to melt this down into broad bars a little more than two inches across, end quote. The Spaniards had no regard for the history of these objects. All they wanted was the wealth it represented back home. How much of Montezuma's treasure did Cortes melt down? That's not known to history, but their end goal is clear. They wanted everything, not just the treasure, but the city itself. Cortes needed to make that message clear. After six weeks, Cortes received word that some Spanish scouts had been killed by Aztec warriors four kilometers away back on the coast. He used this as an excuse to take Montezuma hostage in his own capital. Most likely, Cortes had been waiting to make this move for some time, and the attack gave him an easy excuse. He was a conqueror after all. It was time to conquer. So just like that, the conquistador made his move. Tenochtitlan, for all intents and purposes, now belonged solely to Cortes. But then the past came calling. His old boss, Velazquez, had sent another expedition to track down Cortes and apprehend him for mutiny. Cortes decided he needed to meet this threat head on and left Lieutenant Pedro de Alvarado in charge in his stead 
confident that their grasp on the city was firm. Cortez took half of his men and marched off to head off this attack. And he succeeded, using his charisma to convince this new wave of soldiers to join him back in Tenochtitlan. He literally bribed them with gold. But he didn't know that trouble awaited back in the Aztec capital. During Cortez's absence, his lieutenant, Alvarado, grew increasingly nervous about their status in the city. With Montezuma completely removed from public life, the Aztecs suddenly seemed less welcoming. Alvarado witnessed a large-scale ritual sacrifice of human life. This wasn't an unusual occurrence for the Aztecs. In fact, it was most likely a traditional ceremony. However, Alvarado took it as an act of blasphemous violence and possibly a tiding of what was to come for his men. He decided to take action, and the Spaniards killed a number of Aztec nobles. The Aztecs finally had enough of these invaders. They rebelled and forced the Spanish forces to retreat inside the walled center of the city. By the time Cortes returned in June of 1520, they had chosen a new emperor, Cuitlahuac, replacing the still-imprisoned Montezuma. Cortes released Montezuma from his cell and brought him to the top of a high temple to address his former people in hopes the former emperor could bring his people under control. But he chose the wrong idol. It seemed the people had already had their fill with Montezuma. Again, sources are muddled over whether it was the Spanish or the Aztecs who dealt the final blow. But Montezuma was struck down in the midst of this conflict. Soon enough, he was dead. And the Spanish were trapped inside a city, surrounded by dangerous and angry warriors who no longer believed in their visitors' divinity. The night that followed, June 30th, 1520, took on a distinct name in history, La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrows. Cortes immediately saw the writing on the wall. Their supplies were running low, and there was no chance to hold out against nearly 300,000 Aztecs. He ordered a full retreat. He sent messengers out to the new emperor, Cuitlahuac, asking for a one-week ceasefire. The Spanish would return the stolen treasure and leave the Aztecs in peace. Secretly, however, Cortes mobilized his army to abscond in the middle of the night. Again, as told in Diaz's historical report, Cortes told his men, quote, Bear witness for me that I can do no more with this gold. It cannot be weighted or brought to safety. I now give it over to any soldiers who care to take it. Otherwise, we shall lose it to these dogs, end quote. Taking as much as they could carry, the Spanish ran for the causeways that led off the island, but the Aztecs had already destroyed or barricaded most of them. Only one path remained across the Tlacopan causeway. Alerted to the Spanish retreat, the Aztecs descended on the fleeing army with full force. The Spanish struggled their way across the Tlacopan causeway, but the stolen gold bars were heavy. They either fell into the waters of Lake Texcoco to drown, or be picked off by Aztecs, or drop the gold into the waters, refusing to turn it back over to the warriors who had bested them. Tenochtitlan would not let the Spanish leave with this gold without enacting a heavy price. The battle was vicious. Diaz records that the wounded Cortez even had tears in his eyes as he made it across the causeway, and turned back to see the devastation of his army. 
All of their cannons and most of their horses were lost in the battle. Estimates of Spanish casualties range from 150 to 300 men. The Aztecs lost a thousand souls, but it was a loss they were willing to accept as they finally pushed the Spanish out of Tenochtitlan. Yet Cortes would have his revenge. He returned with an even bigger army in May of 1521 for a second assault against Tenochtitlan and an Aztec population racked with smallpox. This time, he would be triumphant and the Aztec Empire would fall. Yet this isn't a story about the fate of Cortes or the Aztec Empire. It's about Montezuma's treasure and the path it took after the fateful Night of Sorrows. Some believed it was lost forever. Others, though, suspect this golden legacy was hidden away to one day be returned to a restored and triumphant Aztec Empire. Long after the destruction of the Aztec Empire, sources such as the Florentine Codex kept the legend of Montezuma's lost treasure alive. To reiterate, there are two main theories about the treasure's fate. The first is that the treasure was not lost during La Noche Triste and instead made it back to the Spanish Empire to fuel further colonialism. This, of course, is rather impossible to prove or disprove, but it was Cortes's intent in melting down the Aztec treasures in the first place. The second theory still contains the possibility of discovery, of eventual certainty. It's the dreamer's theory. It's the treasure hunter's theory. It's the theory that posits that following the first siege of Tenochtitlan and the death of Montezuma, Aztec priests ordered the remaining treasure of the city gathered. They knew that Cortes and the wrath of the conquistadors would soon return. They weren't going to lose it all over again. The treasure was assigned guardians and divided up into groups, possibly manned by some of the empire's greatest warriors. The priests then gave the final command, Flee from Tenochtitlan. Flee from the Aztec Empire. Flee north to a land far from home. They would have traveled in large numbers, with the lowliest among them shouldering the heavy burden of treasure as the high-class warriors scouted the way forward into another world. Other civilizations must have seen them from a distance, emerging from the foothills of northern Mexico into America, backlit by the fading sun and headed towards some unknown destination. Now we finally return to the prospector James White and the story he had to tell when he was rescued by the Mormon farmers near the Grand Canyon in 1867. This tale and those that have spun off from it may have only been based on the ramblings of a man on the edge of insanity, but they are the most solid lead we have to follow. Just weeks before he washed up on the shores of the Colorado River, White had been an average prospector, working his way along the western rim of the canyon, seeking his own personal American fortune, gold. But then, White's troop came under attack from Native American warriors. As his fellow prospectors were cut down and slain all around him, only White and one other man managed to escape. With nowhere else to turn, they constructed an escape craft out of logs and leather harnesses from their dead horses. They shoved out into the water and immediately hit a huge pocket of rapids. The raft disintegrated. White watched as his friend's side of the craft broke off and careened down a steep drop, 
certain death for his companion. White was alone now, headed down a treacherous river that no white man had ever fully traversed. He almost envied his friend. At least his death came quickly. Once White's ramshackle raft made it through the rapids, the only thing ahead of him was miles of desolate river and the beating sun overhead. Five days later, White used the last of his energy to pilot the raft to shore, only hoping to catch some forgiving shade beneath a mighty cliff wall. However, when he reached land, White caught sight of something even more attractive, a small opening in the cliff, a dark cave, refuge. He stumbled into the cave, collapsed onto the ground, and passed out from sheer relief. When his eyes opened again, firelight bounced across the cave walls. Moving silhouettes surrounded him. James White wasn't alone anymore. It was a different group of Native Americans than the ones that had attacked him above the canyon. They didn't wield weapons, just torches. Aided by this flickering light, the cave glittered with sparks of a familiar hue for a prospector. Gold. This was exotic gold, shaped into artifacts, idols, and masks dotted with other precious glowing stones. White claimed he also spied stacks of gold bars, a fortune big enough to buy an empire. One of the Native Americans approached White and kneeled down beside him. White tried to shy away, but his strength was completely gone. He thought death had finally arrived. He was wrong. Instead, the man offered White food and then some water to wash it down. Once the sun rose outside, the Native Americans ushered White out of the cave and back to his raft. Without a word, or at least words that the prospector could understand, they set him back off down the river. If his story was indeed true, when James White reached the safety of the Mormons' farm in 1867, he had become the first European settler to ever make it down the river system of the Grand Canyon. Yet that tale of survival paled in comparison to his story of the cavern filled with treasure. As word spread, that part of the story is what made him infamous. And White was happy to tell the story to anyone who asked. But then came the inevitable follow-up. If what you've seen is true, you must lead us back there, Mr. White. You must bring us to this treasure. Every time this question arose, White had the same response, a polite refusal. Perhaps he felt a sense of loyalty to the Native Americans who saved him. Perhaps he feared ever returning to that desolate stretch of river. Perhaps he had his own secret motives. But James White never returned for that treasure, and no one else ever discovered this hidden cave. The strangest aspect of this tale always came back to a cultural question. No Native Americans in the Grand Canyon area were known to possess any objects like the ones White claimed to see in that cave. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, one unverified epilogue to White's story involves a researcher who claimed to prove that the description of the cavern's treasure matched up exactly with Aztec artifacts. Yet even with this addendum, the claim was still ridiculed. It seemed absurd. Why would Native Americans in the Badlands of the West be guarding Aztec treasure? But then a second story about treasure hidden in a cave popped up. And then a third. 
White's claims stopped seeming so ridiculous, and the idea that priceless treasure was hidden somewhere in the depths of the Grand Canyon became a tantalizing possibility. We'll hear those stories after this. Now, back to the story. In 1902, another prospector may have stumbled upon the same treasure as James White. His name was Jake Johnson. Once more, there's no way to verify whether Johnson told the truth about his connection to the lost treasure, but its intriguing similarity to White's story force us to consider it as a possibility. Traveling home and weighed down by heavy equipment, Johnson broke his leg in the middle of the Utah desert. With a rising fever, nowhere to go, and no one to look out for him, he was in deep trouble. But then, much like it happened to White, Johnson was saved by an old Paiute Native American and his wife, who stumbled upon him while on a journey of their own. They remained in camp with him, nursing him back to health until Johnson's fever dropped off. But one night, when the man was off hunting, a mountain lion stalked into their camp. Johnson stumbled to his feet, picked up his rifle, and lit a branch on fire. Johnson saved the life of the Paiute woman. When her partner returned, he was eternally grateful. In fact, Johnson was accepted as a trusted friend and insider. The group traveled together back toward Johnson's town. Along the path, the Paiutes would tell Johnson Native American legends each evening. One in particular caught the prospector's attention. Generations ago, the Paiutes of Utah caught sight of a huge group of warriors descending into the Grand Canyon. They led a contingent of slaves who carried massive crates on their backs. They climbed down the south rim of the canyon and then into a cavern in the wall of the mighty cliff. Afterwards, the slaves were slaughtered. When the warriors emerged from the canyon, the Paiutes met them with grace and kindness. The warriors remained in the area, trading and eventually intermarrying with the Native Americans. They explained to the Paiutes that they awaited word from their home that the enemy had been defeated. Once that had occurred, the warriors were to return with the hidden treasure. But the years passed and word never arrived. Slowly, the warriors died and their progeny became fully Paiute. To honor the deceased warriors, the Native Americans took it upon themselves to guard the treasure and hold on to the story. Johnson was fascinated by this tale. The more he thought about it, the stronger it took hold of his every waking moment. He remained in touch with his Paiute friends. In September 1903, Johnson and his brother contacted the Native Americans with a request. They wanted to see the treasure. The Paiutes were wary, but the old man trusted Johnson. The Johnson brothers met with a small group of Paiutes under the desert sky. They were immediately blindfolded. For four days, they rode horseback without sight. The Paiutes were their eyes and ears. When the blindfolds were removed, the Johnson brothers did not need to adjust much for sudden light. They were in a deep, dark cave, surrounded by piles of gleaming treasure. The Paiutes allowed the Johnson brothers to take as much as they could carry, just as Cortez told his men all those years ago. But the Johnson brothers didn't have as many hands, and they were watched by the leery eyes of their Native American guides. As soon as their hands were full, the Paiutes put the blindfolds back on, and the brothers were escorted out of the cavern. Back in town, 
they sold their gold to a local smelter. It was a small fortune, and enough for both of them to buy land in southern Utah. Yet the brothers became obsessed. Greed had taken hold. They wanted more. They needed more. Using their land as a base camp, the brothers spent years on expeditions into the canyon, seeking the cave of treasure. Four years later, the frustrated treasure hunters put out a call in the Salt Lake Mining Review, asking for help. In this 1907 article, their description of their treasures sounded a lot like James White's. The two stories became one. People came to believe that this treasure was the Aztec gold described by White. Of course, it's very possible that the Johnsons had heard of White's story and were merely over-eager in equating theirs with his. Or perhaps they made this entire story up to match White's tale. That seems unlikely, though, because the Johnsons truly did spend years looking for their cave. Many interested parties answered their call, but the gold was never found. However, it did turn Utah and the Grand Canyon into the central location for the myth of Montezuma's treasure. Many dreamers followed in the Johnson brothers' wake. The most notable seeker was Freddie Crystal. He wandered into the town of Kanab, Utah in 1914 with nothing but a map in his hand. He would never say where exactly he procured this map, but he was certain it pointed to the location of Montezuma's treasure. Some locals took a look and all agreed. The markings on the map resembled the nearby area of White Cliffs. Crystal didn't need to hear anything else. He hiked up the cliffs and soon stumbled upon a set of moky steps. These are footholds carved by the ancient Pueblo peoples of America. Crystal took this as a positive sign and followed them to a series of sandstone tunnels into the cliffside itself. Crystal reported back that one of these tunnel entrances was blocked with a stone wall, a wall that had been seemingly made by hand. This was enough to stir up excitement in Kanab. Crystal returned to the cliffs with a team of treasure hunters. If there were handmade stone walls blocking the tunnels, Crystal and his hunters knocked them down, forever hiding the truth from history. They dove into the caverns. Their excitement only ramped up when the tunnels led to even more small chambers, what seemed like the perfect place to hide long-lost treasure. But there were dangers awaiting them too. And they nearly stumbled into a few deep pits hidden around tight corners and placed at dead ends. Were these booby traps for unwanted visitors? Crystal assumed as much. But even as he risked life and limb for treasure, no treasure appeared. The caves were empty. Some records show that Crystal and his crew found a few Native American artifacts, but no Aztec gold. No gold at all. Crystal refused to give up. He spent years in Kanab, canvassing every cavern, cave, and outcropping in the area. In the end, he never admitted defeat. Crystal simply proposed that the cave system had once been the home of Aztec gold before its guardians moved it yet again, carting it off to parts unknown. Following Crystal's failed hunt, the leads went cold. The believable theories and legends vanished, replaced by pure hogwash, such as one claim that the gold vanished into the lost Guatemalan city where the crystal skulls were also found a discovery that is known today as an elaborate hoax. There was no truth to any of this. Even treasure hunters began to give up hope until 1981. 
During a routine construction project near the center of Mexico City, workers caught sight of something uncovered beneath the dirt, gold. According to a New York Times report, a four-pound gold bar was pulled from the earth. Quote, the concave rectangular bar, which contains 22.5 carat gold with a market value of $25,000, was picked out of mud 15 feet below street level at a site where a new office block is being built, end quote. Quote, the site coincides with the site of a canal along a causeway in 1521. Containing 93.98% of gold, the bar was the result of a rushed foundry job consistent with the melting process that was ordered by Cortez and recorded by historian Diaz del Castillo, end quote. Finally, the world had concrete evidence that the stories about Montezuma's gold was true. Cortez had indeed melted down some of the ancient treasure and lost it during the flight from the city. The bar was put on display in the National Museum of Anthropology as, quoting the Times, the only remnant of the legendary treasure ever found. But what about the rest of it? Is there more buried treasure beneath the surface of this bustling metropolis, left over from the flight during La Noche Triste? It's likely, but without a precise read on location or amount, it might be too costly to investigate. And yet, is that everything there is to find? What about the myth of the treasure and its far-flung Aztec guardians? Gaston Garcia Cantu, director of Mexico's Anthropology and History Institute, is skeptical that more will be found. To quote him, there are all sorts of myths about the treasure of Montezuma, but Cortes got all there was. There is no evidence to suggest that there is treasure hidden or lost somewhere. It was used to finance the Spanish wars in the Netherlands and against England and Italy. We stand with Cantu and believe this is what happened. Cortez must have made off with some of the gold he melted down. There are probably some more bars of gold lost beneath Mexico City, trapped in the former lake bed of Lake Texcoco. But Cantu isn't putting much faith in the Aztecs. It's important to remember that their empire was a great one. It was impressive enough to awe the Spanish with its expansive layout and architectural grandeur. Is it truly that unbelievable that they spirited away some of their riches before Cortez returned to end their reign for good? Was not La Noche Triste enough of a travesty for these superstitious people to take as a sign from the gods? Maybe, just maybe, the story that the Paiutes told Jake Johnson has some truth to it. Maybe the gold was hidden in the Grand Canyon at some point, but maybe it didn't stay there forever. Those appointed to keep it safe never forgot their duty and kept moving it from place to place, just like Crystal thought. Perhaps a force greater than greed prevailed in this case. For every Cortez, there was a James White or a noble Paiute warrior. There were those who believed in a higher calling for this treasure. There was a secret order dedicated to protecting it from those who hope to use it for anything other than the restoration and propagation of the spectacular ancient Aztec Empire. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. 
If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network or at Parcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.